Tonight, as we come to Job chapter 18, we are sort of right in the middle of this extended section where Job is arguing back and forth with his friends. Uh, Just for the sake of somebody who maybe they're just tumbling into this study for the first time, I'll give you a very brief review of the book of Job. We're introduced to this man named Job, who was an incredibly godly man. He's called a blameless and an upright man. And what's more, God from heaven calls him a blameless and upright man. And there was a controversy in heaven between God and Satan over this man, Job. Satan believed that Job served God only because of the blessings that he gave him. And if God or if Satan were to take away those blessings, then Job would no longer be interested in honoring or in serving God. Satan said, take away the blessings and he'll curse you. God said, no, I trust my servant Job more than that. So God allowed Satan to take away all of Job's blessings, to take away the blessing of his children, to take away the blessing of his wealth, to take away the blessing of his health, to take away the blessing of a supportive wife, to take away the blessing of supportive friends around him. Well, Job went into the midst of this incredible crisis that came crashing down upon his life. And in the midst of this crisis, he cried out to God and wished he had never been born. Wished if he had been born, he would have died at birth. He just figured it would be better to be dead than to be in the condition he was in. Now, in all of this, he didn't curse God. He came close, but he didn't curse God. He stayed faithful to what the Lord wanted him to be faithful to. Well, in the response to this great outpouring from Job's heart, his three friends who came and first just sat with him for seven silent days, but then afterwards, prompted by Job's great outburst, they started speaking to Job. And his three friends, their names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And each one of them spoke to Job. And as each one of them spoke to Job, Job would reply. Right now, as we come to chapter 18, we find ourselves in the second round of speeches. This is the second time that Bildad will have spoken to Job. And I don't know about you, but in this long section of chapters in Job, all the way basically from from chapter 3 all the way up until uh, chapter 37, Job or his friends are just talking back and forth to one another. And I'm hoping that as we come to chapter 18 tonight, either at the beginning or at the end, I'm hoping you're kind of getting tired of this. I'm hoping you read this and you go, man, won't these guys ever shut up? Are they just going to sit back? I hope it's wearying to you. Because I think it's supposed to be wearying to you. I think you're supposed to receive all this and understand that at the end of it, human wisdom, human analysis, human discussion is completely exhausted. There's nothing more to say. There's no more answers in the human mind for what Job's going through. And then when all of that is done, because let me say, if you're getting tired of this, you're going to get sick of it before we're done. And then when you're finally sick of all the talk, 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 talk between Job and his friends, then God's going to show up. But, but it's kind of important that we exhaust human reason, that we exhaust human analysis before we get to God speaking. 
Chapter 18, Bildad speaks for a second time. And I want you to see, they're getting less and less polite with one another. They've been answering back and forth fairly harshly. Chapter 18, verse 1, Then Bildad the Shuahite answered and said, How long will you, till you put an end to words? Gain understanding, and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? Well, that's quite a way to start your speech, isn't it? First, he basically says to Job, verse 2, How long till you put an end to words? Can I just put that into another frame? Job, won't you just shut up? Won't you just please stop talking? Now, what's interesting is you can tell they're getting tired of one another, but they're still not done. They've still got chapter after chapter to go until they're finished talking. But notice what else he says there in verse 2. He says, gain understanding and afterward we will speak. And then why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? Job, you just think we're stupid? We see your situation. We see the, the problem that's there. Job, you're crying out in agony to God because you say, I can't figure this out. But Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they had figured it out. Now, in their own minds, they'd figured it out. We, the reader, know because we know from Job chapters 1 and 2 what, what Job and his friends did not know. But to Job's friends, it all seemed pretty clear. Verse 4. You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? That's a very interesting verse because he is referring back to something that Job said before. Keep a finger there in Job chapter 18, verse 4, but I want you to go back to Job chapter 16, verse 9. Look at what Job says at Job chapter 16, verse 9. He says, He tears at me in his wrath. And hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. Job there is speaking about how he feels God is attacking to him. And he's pointing his finger up to heaven. Job was. And he was saying, he, that God up in heaven, he's tearing at me. And do you see what Bildad's response to him is there in verse 4? You tear yourself in anger. Bildad was telling Job, just look at yourself. You're tearing yourself to pieces in anger. Your condition is all the evidence anybody needs to see that you're in sin and that you need to repent. And then look at what else he says there in verse 4. He says, shall the earth be forsaken for you? You see, Bildad, and I think every one of the three friends would agree, this wasn't unique to Bildad, Eliphaz and Zophar would have agreed with him, Bildad felt that Job wanted to overturn unchangeable laws of life, the laws of cause and effect. Listen, Job, we see the effect, crisis, catastrophe in your life. Job, hello, you're not under the blessing of God. If you were under the blessing of God, these things wouldn't have happened. God is not happy with you, Job. That means it's time to repent. And if Job wanted to overturn that, it's as if in Bildad and the rest of the three friends' mind, he is overturning the fundamental foundations of the world. He was angry because he thought that Job's attitude threatened the whole moral order of the universe. Job, do you want us to change around the whole moral order of the universe just for your sake? Just because you're having a bad stretch? Now, after that sort of introduction, Bildad is going to build more of a case now, starting at verse 5, where he says, The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. 
You see, here Bildad wants to teach Job about the life and the fate of the wicked. And in doing so, he's hoping that Job will get the message. Job, you are one of the wicked guys that I'm talking about. What does he say there? He says, the light is dark in his tent. Again, keep a finger there in chapter 18. Go back to the final few words of Job in chapter 17, verses 10 through 16. He talks about the great darkness in his life. Look there at verse 12. He says, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness. You see, at the end of Job's previous speech, he described the darkness of this life and all of Job's prospects as being dark, all the gloomy context of the grave as a welcome home. And Bildad's saying, Job, the fact that you have such a gloomy outlook on life, it means that you're among the wicked, you're not among the godly. Now picking it up here at verse 7, he says, the steps of his strength are shortened. Again, Bildad's talking about the wicked man. The steps of his strength are shortened and his own counsel casts him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Do you get that picture that Bildad's painting here? There's someone who's getting trapped. You know, it's sort of like a trap for an animal in the forest. You know, do you see the little bunny rabbit hopping around in the forest? Oh, the bunny rabbit's so happy, isn't it? And then the bunny rabbit steps its foot into the little noose, right? And the noose tightens around and the snare catches the bunny rabbit. And all of a sudden, the bunny rabbit's life is turned upside down and so is the bunny rabbit hanging from the little noose that's on its foot and it's caught there for the hunter. And now, Bildad says, Job, that's you. Bildad here describes the wicked man as someone who was weak in his steps, who was unwilling or unable to continue the journey of life. He goes, Job, that's you. And not only is the wicked man weak in his journey, he's also on a dangerous path. There's snares, there's traps, there's problems all around. Very interesting. In these verses here, 7, 8, 9, and 10, there are six different names of hunting devices used. Snare, trap, noose, whatever you want to get. Uh, in the Hebrew, six different hunting devices are used. The, the, the idea is that, Job, you are on a very dangerous path. You are going to get captured. You see, in Bildad's perspective, Job has walked into his own crisis and a snare has laid hold of you. And because of this, look at this verse 11. He's going to go on and describe the miserable life of the wicked man. He says, terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He's uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. Now again, in this very poetic and eloquent description of what happens to the ungodly or to the wicked man, Bildad wants Job to recognize himself in this portrait. Verse 11, he says, terrors frighten him on every side. Well, Job said that he was terrified. That must be you, Job. It says, verse 13, it devours patches of his skin. What was part of the ailment that Job suffered all over his body? It was some sort of skin affliction. And Bildad says, you know, this is what happens to wicked people, Job, exactly what's happening to you. Verse 14, he's uprooted from the shelter of his tent. Did this whole dialogue go on in the comfort of Job's tent? 
snow. It went on outside in the garbage dump outside of town. Verse 14, they parade him before the king of terrors. What is the king of terrors? Very interesting. This seems to be a marvelously poetic description of death itself, given the horrific title, the king of terrors. I like what the commentator F.B. Meyer says about this phrase. He says, so the ancients spoke of death. They were constantly pursued by the dread of the unknown. Every unpeopled or distant spot was the haunt and dwelling place of evil and dreadful objects. But the grave and the world beyond were above all terrible. And death was the king of terrors. And Job is is paraded before death personified here as the king of terrors. And then it says here in verse 15, brimstone is scattered on his habitation. Again, just sort of to give the idea of the complete destruction happening to the wicked man who here is clearly uh, understood to be as Job. Continuing on now, verse 17, he says, The memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He's driven from the light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the west are astonished at his day. Those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Now again, verse 17 The memory of him perishes from the earth. You know, in his previous speech, back in Job chapter 16, Job pled for the earth to cry out on his behalf, testifying of his innocence before God. But here Bildad tells Job that there's no possibility of this as you die as a wicked man. You'll have no son or posterity among the people. Verse 19 Your children are dead, Job, and you'll have no one to succeed you. Verse 21, notice this. This is the place of him who does not know God. See, Bildad carried his attack yet further against Job. Not only was Job among the wicked, he was also one who does not know God. Now, I want you to think about that. You, You and I, right, we read Job 1 and 2. We know this man, Job. We know that he was a blameless and upright man. We know that he loved God and had a genuine relationship with him. And to have a man like Bildad stick his finger in Job's face and say, you do not know God. Well, that was especially a cruel and false statement to make against a man who was, as again it says in Job chapter 1 verse 1, who was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. This was a a tremendously powerful description of the power of evil that Bildad made. And you know what's interesting about this? Couldn't you see yourself preaching this sermon that Bildad preached to a sinner? And it would fit. Listen, sinner, this is where you're going. This is the destructive end of your sins. It's not that what Bildad said was wrong. It was just wrong for Job's situation. I mean, let's be honest. Bildad's wisdom, his analysis of the situation is good and valid for many people and for many situations, but not for Job. Isn't it funny? Bildad and the rest of Job's friends, they look at Job and they say, Job, it's your wickedness that has brought you to this place. Now you and I know that just the opposite is true, that it was the faithfulness of Job that brought him to this place. Isn't it ironic? That not only is it not what his friends think, but it's exactly the opposite of what his friends think. I like what one writer 
Mike Mason said about this. He said, it is not Job's wickedness, but his faithfulness that the Lord is disclosing through this ordeal. In fact, there may be nothing our God wants more than to bring each one of us to the point where he can do with us exactly what he did with Job. Hand us over with perfect confidence into the clutches of Satan, knowing that even then our faith will hold. And that's what's happening for Job. Now, we come into chapter 19. Job is going to respond to Bildad. And if you want to see Job's faith holding, this is a great chapter for it. This may be one of the, one of the summit peaks here for Job in this whole account. So here we go. Job chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, and again, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for Job to say, well, thank you very much, Bildad, for your contribution to our little discussion. No, these guys go at it back and forth, right? Verse 1, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with your words? These ten times you've reproached me. You're not ashamed that you've wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my heir remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Isn't that funny? Do you remember the imagery that Bildad was using from the previous chapter about being caught in a net or a snare or a trap? And it's as if Job was saying, okay, listen, if I'm caught in anybody's net, it's God's net. God is responsible for all this. But he began in verse 2, how long will you torment my soul? This is now a familiar complaint that we hear from Job, criticizing his unsympathetic tormentors of his soul. Verse 4, and if indeed I have erred, my heir remains with me. Job was steadfast in his refusal to agree with his friends that he had caused this crisis by some remarkable sin and refusal to repent in his life. He said, no, if it was a sin, then it's still with me because I don't see it and I'm not going to repent of something that I don't see. And then he says with great power there in verse 6, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Job insisted to his friends that he was not a guilty victim before a righteous God. If God had sent or allowed this calamity in Job's life, it could be said that God had wronged Job because the calamity was not a just penalty for some sin in Job's life. And again, we're allowing for the emotional aspect of this pained outpouring. I have to say, I understand how Job could say that. Now listen, if, if you want to get down to theological correctness and nicety, you'd say, Job, that's a very wrong thing for you to say, that God has wronged you. God doesn't wrong anybody, Job. But look at the man. Look at his situation. Look at his feeling allowing for the emotional agony that Job's going through, we understand how Job would say, know then that God has wronged me. He had reason to think this, and it's good for him to pour out his honest feelings before God and his friends. And I would say this, you would be very wrong if Job stayed stuck here. If a year later Job was still saying, God wronged me. But for him to think this and feel this and pour this out before God, I think it's very healthy of what Job is doing. Oh no, Job, don't stay stuck there. But we understand you pour it out before God. And then he's going to go on. Look, if you think, he, well, he's just beginning to walk along this line. Look here, verse 7. If I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. 
If I cry aloud, there's no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindles his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. Here, Job complains about what is the core of his crisis. Did you see that in verse 7? If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. You see, Job was accustomed to finding comfort and some sense of answer to God in his previous trials. Again, I've pointed this out before, but let me remind you. Do we think for a moment that this is the first trial that Job ever had in his life? No. Now, obviously, this is much more severe. It's much more intense. We all understand that. But Job had had problems before. And what would he do? He would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would comfort him with his presence. The Lord would answer him with his voice, and the Lord would bring solutions to Job's difficulties, or at least comfort in the midst of the difficulties. Now, he felt that God was utterly silent and distant, and that is what tormented Job more than anything. You see, what Job wanted more than anything was an answer from God or the presence of God, some kind of comfort from God, and he felt nothing. Instead, look at what he says there in verse 8. He's fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. And then verse 9, he stripped me of my glory. Again, with a deeply moving, poetic style, Job described how he felt that God had brought him low. He was like a king uncrowned. He was like a house with its walls broken down. And he was like an uprooted tree. And then he says in verse 11, very dramatically, he counts me as one of his enemies. You see, Job couldn't comprehend it. I don't think we could expect him to. But right now, as God looked down from heaven upon Job, did God look at Job and say, that's my enemy? No. What did God see when he looked down upon Job? God looked down from heaven upon Job and he smiled. He said, there's my special friend. Everything has been stripped away from him. He's in the depths of agony and he has not cursed me. He would point his finger towards Satan and say, Ha, ha, on you, Satan. Job has not cursed you, me. He hasn't cursed me one bit. Job is my special friend. And isn't it absolutely fascinating to you and me that at this moment where Job felt as if God was his enemy, he was actually in reality his special friend. You see, God put Job into a place where he was expected to believe despite what he felt was irrefutable circumstances and personal feelings that said that God was his enemy. Instead, what did he feel? Look at what he says in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, uh, His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. Here, Job uh, here is speaking about how a city would be surrounded and, 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 and um, conquered by a siege army. And as if he's like saying, listen, all I have is my little tent. And it's like a great big army. Can you get that picture in your mind? Here's a mighty army, thousands of soldiers, enough to conquer a mighty city, and they're all surrounding one lonely little tent in the wilderness. That's how Job feels. Because look, God, you've got this great army against me, and I'm just my own little tiny tent here. That's how Job felt. Then verse 13. He's removed my brothers far from me. 
And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. You see, first in verse 13, he describes how God has removed my brothers far from me. He's probably speaking of his friends there. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar as his three brothers. They weren't his literal brothers, but they were his brothers in spirit, brothers in heart. And he goes, listen, you guys used to be like brothers to me, and now you're far from me. Verse 16, I call my servant, but he gives no answer. You know, Job used to have servants, right? Uh, Excuse me, servant, can you come help me? Job calls, they, they ignore him. They go the other way. Nobody wants to listen to Job anymore. Does it get worse? Yes, it does. Look at verse 17. My breath is offensive to my wife. He had bad breath. Nobody wanted to be around him. His own children didn't like him. Now, it's very interesting in verse 17. He says, I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. The children that he refers to here must either be his grandchildren or those who were symbolically Job's children. You know, those who had taken a special interest in and raised up. Because from what we know in chapter 1, all of his children were killed in that tragic accident. However, there are some commentators, one man named Adam Clark, he believes that Job had other children who were not killed in the accident. I, I wouldn't agree with Adam Clark on that. I think he's probably referring to his grandchildren here. Because his children were grown up, they, they were adults, he probably had grandchildren. And, and they didn't like him. I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. He says there, even young children despise me. And then into verse 20, my bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. I'm wasting away. I'm emaciated. I'm about dead. And then in verse 21, look, he pleads for pity from his friends. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Can't you just feel it in your heart with Job right now? I mean, I picture him saying this with tears streaming down his face. And he's thinking, you know, maybe if you guys would support me, I could make it through this. Maybe if you guys would have a little pity and compassion on me, instead of trying to grind me down into the dust, I could get through some of this. And he just cries out again, and I picture this as being through tears. Have pity on me, have pity on me, oh you my friends. Please, can't you just love me for a while? Why do you persecute me? Verse 22, why do you persecute me as God does? You see, Job had made his appeal to God, and he felt there was no reply. Okay, look, I cry out to God and God doesn't answer. You guys are right here and you can answer me, but you don't. And in the midst of this, with the, with the tears streaming down his face, we're going to have another one of those bright flashes of glory. It's amazing in the book of Job. We're in a dark room and it just seems to get darker and darker and darker. And then suddenly the flashbulb goes off and there's just this flash of radiant, beautiful light in the midst of it. And that's what we approach here starting at verse 23. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that they were engraved on a rock 
with an iron pen and lead forever. Isn't that very interesting? Job seemed to have a, a, a sense that his story would be written, that it would be inscribed in a book for the benefit of countless others through succeeding generations. Yes, it, it is true. Job, your story was written. It did get out with an iron pen. Then he says in great triumph, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. You can't help but be stirred. By Job's great statement there in verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. This is another, as I said before, one of those brilliant flashes of faith in Job's otherwise dark and bleak background of crisis and suffering. Perhaps as he considered that future generations would indeed look at his life and his words, right? He's saying, oh, I hope somebody writes this down. And then he says, listen, if they're going to write it down, write this. If you're going to make a record of this whole story, don't you forget to write this, that I know that my Redeemer lives. That word translated Redeemer is one of the great words of the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word goel, presenting one of the most wonderful concepts of the Old Testament. The goel was someone who stood for another person to defend his cause, to avenge wrongs that had been done to him, and to acquit him of charges that were laid against him. A, a redeemer, or a goel, vindicated somebody who was unjustly wronged. He was a defender of somebody who was oppressed. He was the champion of the suffering. He was the advocate of someone who was unjustly accused. If you were ever wronged, a redeemer would come, or you would hope that they would come. A redeemer would come and stand beside you as your champion and your advocate. And that great Old Testament word, goel, redeemer, it's beautiful. You see, Job, amidst all of his desolation, he declares that I have a redeemer, I have a goel, living and active. He, he's saying something very profound. He's saying the truth that in God, man has his Redeemer in the fullest sense of the word. It was a great spiritual moment of insight for Job. You could say that he recognized Jesus Christ from afar. Let me put it to you this way. There was one interesting aspect about this Goel. A Goel, your Redeemer, it wouldn't be a stranger your goel would be your kinsman, a family member. It might be a distant relative, you know, your second cousin twice removed, that kind of thing. It might be a distant relative, but it would be part of your family, would be your goel, your redeemer. And when he puts this in the heavens, when he puts it and transfers it to eternity, when he says, I know that my redeemer lives and he shall at last stand on the earth, and he's saying, I know that there's going to be a bridge between God and man. 
I'll read you this from Spurgeon. He says, Christ's kinship with his people is to be thought of with great comfort because it's voluntary. We have some, perhaps, who are akin to us, yet wish they were not. Many a time when a rich man has poor relations, he's half ashamed of the kinship between them and wishes that it did not exist. Shame upon him for thinking so. But our Lord Jesus Christ's relationship to us is no accident of birth. He voluntarily assumed this relationship. In other words, listen, if if we're related and I'm your Goel, I'm stuck with it, right? It's just an accident of birth. Well, you're, you're in my family and I'm your Goel. That's my position. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have someone great, someone mighty, someone glorious who would voluntarily become your Redeemer, voluntarily become your Goel, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. You've got to love how he says it there in verse 25. Did you see that? For I know. We're impressed there with Job's certainty. This was something that he knew. It was more than a hope and more than a guess. He knew it. Verse 25 also says that my Redeemer, he knew that he had a Redeemer. He didn't say, for I know that a Redeemer is out there, right? No, it was my Redeemer, that person who would rescue him from his crisis and despair and every accusation against him. And he said so beautifully, I know that my Redeemer lives. And because his Redeemer was alive, he could indeed bring life to Job. Then he says, and shall stand at last on the earth. This means that Job understood that this Redeemer was more than just a spiritual concept. He was a living being who would at last stand on the earth. He knew that the Redeemer would come and comfort and vindicate Job. Even though to this point, Job has been conspicuously without any real comfort from God. You see, at the end of chapter 16, Job was obsessed with the idea that someone in heaven would stand up for him and plead his case. He said, oh, that there was a mediator. But now, he expects to witness that Redeemer on the earth. And then he goes on in this great statement of faith here, verse 25. He says, And after my skin is destroyed, at this point Job held no more hope for the preservation of his flesh. He goes, you know what? If I'm going to die, then I'm going to die. But then after my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Verse 26. Though Job expected the destruction of his skin to be completed, at the same time, he had the confidence of faith to know that God would not hide himself from him forever. He knew enough to say, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. This would be the moment of Job's comfort, of Job's vindication, of Job's restoration, and he would have confidence, even if it only came after this life on earth was over. And then he says it's so powerful in verse 27. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Can't you see how this completely routes Satan's confidence that Job could somehow be turned against God? His confidence and his trust, blind as it was at the moment, was set upon the fact that he would one day see God. It's as if Job is saying, I know that everything is black, everything is dark, nothing makes sense, but I know that God will change it. I know that my Redeemer lives and my own eyes shall see him and not somebody else, but I will. 
anticipating the fulfillment of all that. No wonder that Job could say, as he does there in verse 27, how my heart yearns within me. With this very wonderful revelation and proclamation of the anticipated Redeemer, he clearly, though probably unknowingly, looked forward to Jesus Christ as his Redeemer. And this is one of those chapters in the book of Job where we see Jesus painted so beautifully, right? Yes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And you think of Jesus being Job's Redeemer and our Redeemer, and Jesus living, right? It brings in the idea of the resurrection of Jesus and the work of Jesus and justifying His people. And we like this chapter of Job. We like this section. This might be somebody's favorite few verses in the book of Job, right? Yes, it speaks to us of Jesus. But I want you to think something else here. This chapter does speak to us about the glory of Jesus and his work for his people, but it also speaks to us very powerfully about haunting premonitions of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. Let me read to you some lines from this chapter. And tell me if you can't see Jesus in his suffering here. He has surrounded me with his net. He has set darkness on my paths. He has stripped me of my glory. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as one of his enemies. He has removed my brothers far from me. My close friends have forgotten me. Those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh. And doesn't that almost in a haunting way describe the sufferings and the ordeal of Jesus Christ on the cross and leading up to it? And so we see here in this beautiful way that yes, Jesus is exalted as Redeemer, but we aren't far from Jesus as the suffering Savior as well. But in verse 29, he concludes this chapter, this section of his speech, where he says, but be afraid of the sword for yourselves. You see here, Job was full of spiritual confidence and faith, but because of that, he warned his friends regarding their own disbelief. You see, they seem to believe in God more as a system rather than a person. God was like a great mechanic in the sky, right? And Job just had to figure out where he fit in the mechanism. And Job realizes, no, this is wrong, my friends. You need to repent of your own disbelief. Job believed in God as a person who Job would one day see and who would one day vindicate Job. Job was not afraid of judgment because he was confident that the charges against him were false and his Redeemer would vindicate him. And listen, I want you to think about that just for a moment before we get into chapter 20. Job was confident about all this because Job knew that the charges against him were false, right? What about us? I don't know about you. The charges against me are true. I am not as godly as Job. I am not a blameless and upright man as Job was. And I think of the accusations that people, or worse yet, that Satan could bring against me. And I say, oh, this is all great fine that Job, blameless and upright, has a Redeemer. He's falsely accused and has a Redeemer. What about me? I'm guilty. So many of the accusations that people could make against me, they're true. But then I realize, you know, this is the glory of the Lord's redemption. That it is not only given out to a man who, who, against whom the accusations were false, such as Job, 
but even to me, against whom the accusations are true. You see, our vindicator clears us from the true charges as well as the false ones. The false charges, well, what do they matter? But the true accusations, Jesus Christ can cleanse us from those as well. Well, you, you might read Job chapter 19 and this triumphant declaration of faith and say, okay, we're ready for the end then, right? I know my Redeemer lives, well, hallelujah. You know, in chapter 20, and the Lord blessed Job and the sun fell down and they all lived happily ever after, right? No, 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 listen. Human wisdom is not yet exhausted. And what else have we learned about Job? We've learned that Job has these amazing high points, right? But then he's like on a roller coaster, right? The next minute we're going to come back to Job and he's plummeting down again because it's a very trying thing for him. Anyway, here, Job chapter 20. Zophar is now going to speak for a second time. We've heard from Eliphaz, from Bildad, and now Zophar a second time. This will end the second round of speeches. Verse 1, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Zophar goes, Whoa, listen, I can't sit back about this. Verse 3, I've heard the rebuke that reproaches me. The spirit of my understanding causes me to answer this. He, He was wounded by Job's tough response, and now he's going to answer Job with understanding. Verse 4, Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumph of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he'll be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Again, you see how Zophar began in verse 4? Do you not know this of old? Listen, Job, all the old wise men know this. We know that the universe operates in a certain way. We know that where there is conspicuous judgment, it means there's been conspicuous sin. And Job, the way your life fell apart, it shows us that there was conspicuous judgment. Therefore, there must be conspicuous sin. Therefore, as he says in verse 5, the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Job, we all know this. That whatever good or whatever triumph the wicked seem to enjoy, it is all quickly passing. It's only for a moment and the wicked man will perish forever like his own refuse. And then he goes on here, verse 12, to talk about the misery of the wicked man. He says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour, it becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with milk and cream, excuse me, with honey and cream. He will restore 
that for which he labored, and will not swallow it down. From the proceeds of business he will get no enjoyment, for he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not build. You see, here the basic argument is Zophar's mind, is that Job, a wicked man, can have things good for a while, but then it will all come crashing down upon him. And therefore, Job, that explains why everything was going so good for you. Yeah, Job, everything was great in your life. You were a rich man, you were a happy man, you were a satisfied man, and you said, well, I must be a righteous man. No, Job, because everything can go good for the wicked for a while. Pretty soon it comes crashing upon him. What is sweet today for the wicked man will soon become sour. And here he applied a painful and might I say even an aggressive application. He would insist that Job was the wicked man and all of his prior blessing and prosperity in this life was only the sweet that is now turned sour. Why? Verse 19. For he is oppressed and forsaken the poor. You know, Job was a very rich man, wasn't he? And isn't he here so far giving his little commentary on how Job got his riches? Well, yeah, you cheated people. You oppressed people. You're a wicked man. That's why you got so rich. Verse 20. Because he knows no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him when he's about to fill his stomach. God will cast him on the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon and a bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and it comes out of his body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart, and of his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed him by God. Again, I think you kind of get the sense of it there in verse 22. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Job thought that the reason why Job was in such agony and distress was because of his own self-sufficiency. It's your own misery. And therefore, all these things have come upon you, Job. You feel like God's attacking you, but there's no escape for the wicked man, Job. That's why you feel it has all come upon you. I really like how Zophar puts it. It's very poetic and beautiful. It's not true in Job's case, but it's very powerful and beautiful. Verse 24, he'll flee from the iron weapon and a bronze bow will pierce him through. Job, the wicked man can't escape. There's an iron weapon coming after you and you escape it. Aha, I escaped the iron weapon. Well, now a bronze bow is coming right at you. And then verse 25, can you see the bow pulled? It's ready to shoot. It is drawn and it comes out the body. There's the arrow from God, you wicked man, and it's pierced you through. You're pierced through with the arrows because you were wicked. You know what I think is interesting about this? I think that Job's friends did not seem to regard him as a wicked man when they first came to him. Think about his friends sitting with him through those seven days. What do you think is going on in their heads? Do you think they're saying, oh, that's sinful Job? <laughs> no, they're probably thinking, oh, Job, what a great man. It's too bad all this has come upon. You, you might say 
that Job virtually provoked this argument from them in that they simply tried to help Job see that he was a sinner who needed to repent. And when Job absolutely refused to agree with them, they came to regard him as a stubborn and a wicked man. And then once they regarded him at this, they very quickly hardened in their opinion against Job. And so he says, listen, Job, you're one of these wicked guys. Verse 27, the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his heart will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. Zophar seemed to describe Job's losses on a financial scale, at least. And he made the clear connection that Job was the stubborn, wicked man who deserved this judgment from God. Now, you know what I find very interesting, especially there in verse 28. Verse 28 where he says, and all his goods will flow away. Isn't it interesting how the judgment that comes upon the wicked man that that Zophar describes here is almost purely described in material terms. It's about all the wealth, all the stuff that he loses. And what's fascinating about that, Job never complained about that, did he? Job never complained about that. You never see Job complaining, I can't believe I lost the house. You can't hear Job, oh, my flocks, oh, man, oh, oh, my bank account, it's all, oh, my stock portfolio, it's all gone. Job doesn't complain anything like that. I find it very interesting that in the analysis of Job's friends, what really hurt Job was his financial losses. In the analysis of Job, what really hurt him was a sense that God had departed from him. In his friend's mind, it was very much a material problem. In Job's mind, very much a spiritual problem. And so here, verse 29, this is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. That's Zophar's firm conclusion. I want to clue you in on something. Those are the last words you're going to read from Zophar. Because there's going to be a round three of discussions. But in round three, Zophar doesn't speak. I don't know, maybe he's tired, maybe he's sick of it all, but that's it. But he ends with these words. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. He made the clear connection between the wrath that the wicked man reaps and Job's own situation. Now before we get into chapter 21 and and finish tonight with chapter 21, I want to say something about Zophar. So far, was mostly correct. It is true that there is a moral order to the universe. And it is true that wickedness is inherently unprofitable. And that it is cursed and judged by God. I mean, this is a thrilling passage that describes the evil result of a wicked life. You can just read this chapter, and again, it's a great chapter to read to the sinner. But listen, what was true in general principle was not true for Job's specific situation. I don't know how to put it. I hope this makes a little bit of sense to you when I say this. So far spoke the truth, but it was a lie. It was a truth in a general sense, but it was a lie in Job's situation. Zophar, as with the rest of Job's friends, we also have to say, left very little room for grace 
You don't see a lot of grace in Zophar and Job's friends, do you? Well, chapter 21, we'll conclude with that this evening. Job is going to answer Zophar. Ah, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. <laughs> Verse 2, you know, listen carefully to my speech, this appeal from Job. Because of the way Job's friends kept repeating themselves in their arguments, have you noticed that? They're almost like cards you could exchange in a deck, right? Bill dead, so far, life as Bill dead, so far, life Blah, blah, blah. It, they're all pretty much saying the same thing, aren't they? Job is saying here, listen carefully to my speech. Hello, friends, you're not listening to me. You just keep repeating yourselves over and over again. And then he says, verse 3, After I've spoken, keep mocking. See, this indicates that Job's hardness towards his friends hasn't lessened a bit nor has their hardness towards him. They're speaking with each other with a sharp and sarcastic manner. Verse 4, Job's going to talk about the prosperity of the wicked, because really that's what Zophar's speech was all about, right? How the wicked are crushed. Verse 4, As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp. They rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth. In a moment they go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us. For we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we have if we pray to Him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Do you get the sense of what Job's saying here? Zophar made a very eloquent argument in the previous chapter. Job, the wicked get punished. And what does Job answer back? You know what, Zophar? A lot of times they don't. I see the wicked doing pretty good. I see their children dancing while mine are dead. I see their livestock multiplying while mine are gone. I see their houses blessed while mine is destroyed. You, you tell me that the wicked get judged in this life. Listen, Zophar, I don't always see it. I like it how he says it there in verse 5. Look at me and be astonished. I wonder if Job is just kind of shouting directly at them. Look at me! Remember what I was and look at what I now am and you have the gall to call me a wicked man. Instead he says, verse 7, why do the wicked live and become old? You know, listen. Hey, so far, I know a lot of wicked men who grow old and to die nice, peaceful deaths in nice, peaceful beds, surrounded by their family, and they're wicked men. Explain this. Their descendants are established them. They have all this great stuff with their kids, on and on and on. Job was disturbed by the apparent injustice of it all. Verse 17. 
How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. that They're like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? I like that question from Job in verse 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Job would answer, not often enough. It doesn't always happen. And Job wanted no satisfaction or felt no satisfaction, I should say, to hear that the judgment will come upon the wicked man's descendants. He goes, forget that. I don't want to hear that the judgment's going to come upon his children. I want to see that wicked man judge now. Let his, verse 20, let his eyes see his destruction, not his children's. Job almost despaired. He cried out to God to bring destruction upon the wicked man in his own day and not in the time of his household after him. Job acknowledged that wickedness was never ultimately rewarded. Job acknowledged that it was always punished in the end. The problem for Job was that it never seemed soon enough that the wicked would drink the wrath of the Almighty, as it says there in verse 20. Job suffered in the right now. And he wondered why the wicked weren't suffering in the right now. And so verse 22, he keeps going on. Can anyone teach God knowledge? Since he judges those on high, one dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down in the dust and worms cover them. You know, Job's here, he's getting philosophical on us, right? Because, you know, if there's a wicked man and there's a righteous man, and they both seem to die and they both seem to end the same way. Job is clearly uncomfortable in questioning the ways and the wisdom of God, yet at the same time it just seems so unfair to him that the good and the bad seem to have the same fate. Job goes, look, I don't know what happens in the afterlife. I can't see that. But I can see the dead body of the wicked man, and I can see the dead body of the righteous man, and it looks like you just put them in a hole in the ground, and they die, and they decay away. And so he challenges his friends with their empty words here, starting at verse 27. Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? And where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? And do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave, and a vigil kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him, as countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words, since falsehood remains in your answers? I think it's very dramatic here in verse 27, where Job says to his friends, Look, I know your thoughts. You see here, Job is questioning the ways of God, isn't he? God, I don't know if if it's so smart the way you've arranged this. How it looks like the wicked and how it looks like the innocent seem to, to, to have the same fates, God. I don't know about all this. And as he's beginning to question the ways of God, 
the, the faces on Job's three friends were probably going, oh no, Job, don't go there. Don't start questioning the ways of God. And then he says there in verse 27, look, I know your thoughts. He could see it on their faces. They were appalled that he spoke against God and his justice. But look, this is what I want you to understand. Job here is in some trouble in his mind because he doesn't understand the ways of God, right? Well, here's what I want you to understand. His friends don't understand the ways of God either. They think they do, right? That's why they're so horrified at Job. Oh, Job, don't say such things. They think they understand it, but they don't. This was a significant difference between Job and his friends. His friends confidently claimed that they did understand. Job admitted his perplexity. But secondly, for Job's friends, these were matters of theological and moral theory. For Job's friends, this was all a very interesting topic of discussion. For Job, the severely suffering Job... This wasn't a nice topic for conversation. This was life or death struggle. So Job says in verse 28, Where's the house of the prince? And where's the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Job put these words of ejection into the mouth of his friends. They thought it was so simple to analyze. You only have to look at the house of the prince and look at the tent of the wicked. See, look, the prince lives in a great house. He's righteous. The wicked lives in a horrible little tent. He's wicked. But Job was trying to say, It's not that simple. Verse 29, haven't you asked those who travel the road? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. Job knew that the wicked faced an unpleasant judgment eventually in the world beyond. Job knew that, but he wanted to know why don't the wicked suffer now? That's what bothered Job. Verse 31, who condemns his way to his face? Who's going to get in the face of the wicked man and say, you're wrong? Nobody seems to do it. Instead, he's brought to the grave. Verse 32, the clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Job thinks of the wicked man sleeping sweetly in the grave. Oh, I got away with it all. Because it's a lot more complicated than you think, my friends. Verse 34, how then can you comfort me with empty words? You see, the complexity of Job's situation was far beyond the ability of his friends to properly analyze. They had no comfort for him with their empty words and their false answers. Job is not succeeding in convincing his friends. His friends are not succeeding in in convincing him. We're through now with two rounds of speeches. Next, we're going to hear Eliphaz speak again. Job will answer him. Bildad will speak one more time for a very short basis. And then Job will speak again and we get into some of these exciting things in the later chapters. But do you see how this discussion is beginning to wear out? You see, what we're missing from all this is the presence of the Lord. That will come later. But it's important for us to understand in the absence of God's presence, Job is doing his best to figure out this painful situation. I guess all of this just leads us back to the hope that we should end with there in chapter 19, right? Why not leave on that very bright spot? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. 
I think there was a real dramatic change for Job at that point. Some commentators see a whole different atmosphere in Job from that moment of wonderful declaration of faith on. That focus on Christ as his Redeemer. Well, Christ before he knew it was Christ, of course, but prophetically speaking. But that's, that's a solution for us too in the midst of whatever difficulty we think that we're in. To see our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our kinsman, our Goel, and to know that in our flesh we will see God in our connection with Jesus Christ. But let's pray. Father, thank you for these, um, these just intricate and wound out discussions between Job and his friends. I pray, God, that you would teach us both about the, the ability of your Holy Spirit to inspire us to great faith, as Job had in his living Redeemer. Lord, also teach us in this the, um, the weakness of human analysis and how it's easy for us to fall short in our human way of figuring things out. Teach us both strong lessons, Lord, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.